Looking Around the Corner, Episode 1. So what's up, Jim? Uh, nothing much, man. It's, it's been a while. Like, I think the last time we podcasted, what was like a year ago? Probably more than that. More than that. So welcome. You're, you're like the inaugural guest for the relaunching of the Looking Around the Corner uh, podcast. So um, when, are, when are you going to get a virtual background? That's the real, the real question. Yeah, I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to get as the virtual background. For now, you can <laughs> just see my blinds and this half a picture up here. <laughs> oh, good, man. Um, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've been meaning to re relaunch this thing for a while, this podcast, but, you know, life kind of happens. And this year has been a roller coaster for everyone, I think. But I'm glad before December 31st, I got it launched in 2020. Yeah, man, you got to keep it, keep focused, right? Um, so yeah, no, I, I guess you made a big shift, right, in your life um, the last year, year and a mm-hmm. half, going from, uh, I guess, a professor at Emory to, uh, in radiology, um, uh, you know, practice radiologist there, to to moving up north. I'm, I'm curious about your journey. I feel like that would be cool to hear a bit of uh, and, yeah yeah you know I mean, what, you, my, what you feel now versus then and like like what what life is like you know in this COVID world um <laughs> life I think life for me for the last probably a year and a half two years about a year and a half it's it's once it's one curveball after the other that's what that's the best way I can describe it and I think and overall overall it's been in a positive direction you know I mean honestly com- Compared to a lot of other people's problems, mine are pretty trivial, you know, like I'm lucky, I have my health, my family, you know, extended family, friends are good. So the, the things that have affected a lot of other people, we've been lucky enough to, you know, not been, not been affected by. So I hope 2021 brings in even more, more stories where people are like, okay, they can now move on to other things in their life, as opposed to being, you know, constantly on guard and, and scared about what's going to happen, so to speak. I mean, for me, yeah, you know, I, I quit a job that I was at, I was at for a while, actually many years, almost eight years. And then we uh, moved up here to the Northeast US and then started a new job. And just as we were sort of getting, you know, acclimated to that transition, all of a sudden, you know, this, COVID, COVID pandemic hit and uh, everything sort of, everything slowed down, you know, as far as, mm-hmm. you know, the different sort of things and interests that I had. I mean, one of the biggest things that got affected was just not being able to travel anywhere. You know, yeah. that, that made a huge difference. Um, I used to travel pretty extensively before and it, it, it's weird, like not having had gone to the airport now in, you know, in so long and not traveling and um I, I put a tweet up earlier today just as a joke like the number of airline miles that i didn't earn this year were <laughs> unbelievable you know yeah totally <laughs> was- i remember we, we had a planned <laughs> trip for japan um my, my girlfriend was gonna uh-huh. present, present there and i i was really looking forward to like japan and you know like 
now it's a virtual conference. We're at home. We're like, oh man, we were going to be in Japan right now. And I feel like everyone has that sense of like, you know, why, why am I not where, where I should be? My family for Christmas is in Atlanta. I, yeah. for a long time, every year visit them for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it's like, we're just being away. And I feel like the sense of disconnect, but yes, <laughs> connection we have to people over Zoom is, is quite odd. Um, it's like, we're, I'm talking to my parents more than I ever have, but yet I feel more disconnected <laughs> in the sense like I can't be there for important things. So it's uh, it's kind of weird. Um, so so I hear you there. And what do you? I'm curious because I haven't really attended many of these. But what do you think about these virtual conferences? Like I I don't know. Have you have you attended a few of these this year? I, I've actually hosted a few. So one of the ones that oh, okay. we did uh, was a I was a part of Climate Voice, which was mm -hmm. a, a climate change um, a group that was focused on getting new bills passed at states and various organizations by signing pledges. Uh, from employees in a company and put pressure on companies to then get like the transportation uh, climate initiative, TCI bill in the Northeast, <laughs> clean transportation everywhere. So we had this whole organization, we did a virtual conference, we had like 50 to 100 people. And, and what we find is they all go in breakout rooms and you're like brainstorming about stuff. And it's like this weird nuance of like, now networking is focused, what? And you know, before it was like a room full of people, you'd go like get business cards yeah. and, and network a room and then I, I I've I've done that I mean I was an engineer I never was really outgoing but you kind of get used to it um and now it's like you have to like network within like a breakout room and then like go to other breakout rooms and like try to like exchange messages but it's weird because you talk over people and it's almost like this <laughs> weird uh notion of, of how do you network in this post-COVID world over breakout rooms it's 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 uh it's actually a different feeling and, and I, I don't know it's it's weird at the same time like you can dominate it it's like whoever can dominate a conversation the most will probably have the <laughs> highest ratings on a social network so oh my god i don't know it's 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 sounds, weird i feel it like sounds crazy i mean i i haven't yeah. honestly i i've really not been interested in too many conferences because you know virtual ones because you know one of the reasons i like going to conferences was the networking in person you meet mm -hmm. interesting people and and then hopefully you can continue that conversation after the meeting's over, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, actually, you know, one of our biggest meetings in radiology, which is the RSNA annual uh, congregation, it's huge. Every year it's in Chicago. Mm -hmm. It's like thousands and thousands of radiologists and vendors and everything. And it was like, uh, I used to go almost every year and it was actually, it was fun because you got to see old colleagues, people you trained with, you met yeah. new, you know, new, new people. And it, it, it almost ended up being like, for me, it, it was mainly for networking and frankly, mm -hmm. catching up with old friends. And, and now this year is the first year I haven't gone in a long time. And because the whole thing's virtual and, and the whole time I kept thinking, I'm like, this, it completely misses the whole point of the conference for me to go virtual on this, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. But as you're presenting I, research, I guess it's like you're presenting a poster or research paper. I guess it doesn't matter that much, but it's weird. Yeah. I, I don't really know that catching up with people virtually has is, is been quite a weird journey, especially like with friends who might have parents that are like affected by COVID or mm -hmm. are going through tough times. It's like super weird, like hearing like these acute, crazy stories that happen and not being there or for me, it's yeah. like kind of that too. It's like the other flip side of it is, you know, what do you do when things get get tough? 
probably the rate of mental health issues is way high and already stress. Um, like when things happen, like where's the support? And I don't know, maybe, maybe we're better off supporting each other in a virtual world, maybe not. I, I really don't know. I actually think people care more now when things happen than before. Uh, it's kind of like more people like check in or wonder just because, oh, did, did your parents have COVID? You know, like it's on everybody's yeah. mind. Um, but it's like kind of weird. Um, so yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I feel very, very weird about networking generally, just catching up with friends. The format of it is, is very different. I feel like we're becoming closer to fewer people uh, generally uh, in, yeah, in our circles. It's interesting you say that like the whole check-in thing, you know, you, you like I noticed that with my own parents and like every few days I'll just, if nothing, just be like, hey, everything okay? Mm-hmm. Like, you know how are you guys feeling and it, you know it, it is odd because I, I never did that really before before covid like it was more like i talked to them once a week okay what's going on you know just very it wasn't a check-in it was just like it was a routine it was like okay well you know, yeah we talk like once a week etc and now it's like because you know that this virus is out there and that at least even right now there's no actual protection against it other than at least mitigating, you know, factors or whatever. It's like, every time you keep thinking, you're like, wait, I haven't heard from them in a little while. Well, my girlfriend got the vaccine today. So, so I feel like I I've seen a glimpse of vaccination. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, it's an awesome, it's, it's, I mean, it's a huge uh, triumph for science and uh, in, in, you know, and technology that we're able, that this has been, you know, rolled out in 2020 like you know everybody said that you know the vac- these vaccines would not come out at, until sometime in 2021 earliest and whatnot and so yeah i mean i i think the the surveillance is going to be very important you know as to the safety of these vaccines now that they came out and i think we're going to learn a lot in the next few weeks now that so many individuals are getting these you know on mass and i think there's even a, a one of these uh, uh, dashboard you know websites now that talks mm-hmm. about vaccinations and it was it was an interesting graphic i saw today from there um the entire map of the world was gray and only england was blue it said <laughs> the person who commented said oh this is a beautiful this is beautiful i i wanted to i just want to see more blue everywhere you know and yeah it was very refreshing to not see like red and you know yeah with, with all the all the all the ghastly numbers of people getting sick and dying and it's it's hospitals. um it's weird. I feel like uh, there's a lot of counterintuitive measures, I'm sure, that would work if we thought through organizationally cities and how they're planned and how we interact and transact within a city. It's amazing to me that Uber Eats is like available. I, I want to be able to get food without it or, or, or whole, whole Foods and Amazon Prime. Like it, it's like the notion of going to a store induces fear in me. Like now it's, <laughs> it's like I, I just don't feel like I want to go outside ever and this feeling of like clicking a button and getting what you want has become like uh 5x in demand for me because yeah I don't know it's it's weird and then the whole idea of you know the stock market and all the companies that have 300x due to COVID like voice companies zoom we're on zoom um Eric Guan's company all these technologies enabling society are now becoming the basis by which we we work and do work, and it's just, to me that's like 
a very, very deep thing for us as a society. And I've thought a lot about that just the past month. It's like, a, what is the future going to be? And what do these technologies mean? Like, what do we, what do we want to build? You know, how, what do we yeah. want to push back on? You know, like, what is, you know, what is, what does it mean for us if everything is in your house and you're like looking into a camera and like doing work? Do you um, think, um, do not you saying think everybody like, has that job, but, but, uh, yeah, but I sure do right now. So, well, it's an interesting question, right? Like when things go back to, I guess, the new normal, like meaning, you know, vaccinations are relatively ubiquitous or hopefully people actually get vaccinated, but let's say, let's presume that a, a good number of people get vaccinated. We were able to come out of this, you know, COVID winter, so to speak, you know, and now people feel better about, you know, leaving their house and leaving their area and whatnot. How much do you think these new habits that we formed, you know, like staying at home and ordering in and using video conference, you know, all, all this new COVID normal, how much, how much of it do you think we're still gonna keep post-COVID, considering that inherently humans are social animals, you know? I think it's here to stay. I mean, uh, it, it, time will tell what HR does at big companies. Mm -hmm. uh, Google announced this thing just today that they're going to do work from home policies at least two days out of the week permanently mm -hmm. for people, which is already a shift that nobody would have thought five years ago would happen. Um, we started our company, Neuralex, as 100% distributed before all of this. So we were, I think I was ready for it. Um, but I think everyone's feeling the pain of being distributed, the burnout that happens, the overworking, the pressure to deliver without guidance. Not everyone functions well with, without structure. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not a, and I think that, you know, if you look at the distribution, there's probably 80, 20, 80% people can't and 20% can, and the people who can are just going to be, like super performers um and that's why it can't be either or i think it's going to be a mixture because mm -hmm. you know post-covid there's going to be a mixture some people are going to want to be more productive at home <laughs> you know there's never a binary decision or there's always a great grayness to everything in a society but i think that i prefer for sure to work from home and be distributed and remote and uh, motivate and, and build teams that way because I, it, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's more efficient. And also you ultimately have more time in a day. Like you wake up and do your work and you have hours left and I can do Peloton for one hour, right? That's like, <laughs> I didn't, didn't do that before. If you commute for an hour or two from Atlanta to your house. Uh, so oh, yeah. the commute can get know. you. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. So do, do that adds think, up over years, right? Like think about all the time that yeah. adds up over two or three years and where that can go and how you devote your time. And when, uh, let's say <laughs> when we lived in Atlanta, yeah, it was about an hour, hour and 15 minutes each way, five days a week. And it takes a toll on you. You know, you, you, you do stuff during the time you listen to podcasts and audio, audio books and all that. But after, after a while, you're just like, it doesn't do it for you. You know, after a while, you're just like, this can't be the way things, you know, should be in my life <laughs> for forever. Yeah. And, and it, it does, it, it, sometimes it's, it's just the, it just, it becomes the last straw type of thing where you, you deal, you tolerate it, you know, for so, just so long. And then after a while, that, that same thing that you tolerated now becomes the reason you're 
you're you're just fed up with like, you know your job or your whatever situation it may be and and so having the option of of just you know maybe even a few days a week working from home i think it it's sort of it helps release that pressure cooker feeling of having to constantly be driving and and you're right it, you, it's a different dynamic you know you you get your work done or if you have something to do in the middle of the day you know something that that needs your attention that you couldn't do when you had a typical job where you had to be physically present all the time and you had, you know, someone maybe looking over your work or whatnot. I think it, it, it's not for everyone, but I think the, the hybrid thing that you're talking about, it would be very smart for companies to adopt to the extent that they can adopt it. I think optionality is good in every scenario for people and work. Because mm -hmm. the more options you have, the more likely you are to tune your environment to what you need. Um, if you have children or you just adopted a puppy or you have family that's sick, like, you know, and who knows what people are going through. And I feel like all the oftentimes work assumes the healthy individual with uh, no family members to, to, to generate output in an economy. And, in today's world, that just doesn't work. You know, it's not like a factory <laughs> that you can just assembly line workers in and expect performance and, and service jobs, uh, which I think historically we've done. If you look at Google, Facebook, and all the, the big companies, they, they I think believe they've created an assembly line for for outputting products, um, mm -hmm. and that balance is kind of tipping a little bit. I think people are feeling a little burnt out. They're feeling like they're overworked. I just had my friend Alex today message me and say, my managers are really pushing me hard with artificial deadlines. And I'm not going to say what company he works at or who he is, but just for his privacy. But I, I'm just saying that like the tech companies, they really push you and, and well, trying to push you faster tech, and faster. It's not, just, it's not just tech companies, right? It's this industrial era mentality you know, it's still pretty pervasive in, in a lot of different industries, even, you know, past the typical assembly line, you know, uh, work worker um, sort of inhabited industries. And it still happens. I mean, we see it in medicine a lot. A lot. I mean, it's becoming even more and more that that work product is, you know, that metric and see this many mm -hmm. patients and this much time. And, they, you know, so everything is, you know, it's funny, like, you know, they, they put it under the rubric of standardization. Like, oh, we're gonna standardize, yeah. we're gonna standardize, we're gonna standardize. And sometimes what happens is that you you over standardize things. And and that over standardization, yeah. you know, it's almost like it's the same mentality they had. Like they're saying that, okay, we wanna make this these, these nuts and these bolts in this factory. So everything has to be done this way. So we have this quality <laughs> and, you know, we're getting, you know, X amount of nuts and bolts out per unit time, whatever. And and so they've taken they've taken that system and they've pretty much translated it into so many different industries at this point. And you know, tech and healthcare yeah. and and it's all you know, farm I have a friend who's a pharmacist and she says the same thing. She's like, Oh yeah, you know, our her employer, they they push the same type of mentality to them. So when you know her the patients come and she they ask her questions, he literally has to think, okay, I need to answer this question within the next 30 seconds, or I need mm -hmm. to figure out a way to, to get this person away, which is, she doesn't want to do that. She wants to be able to talk to the patients, you know, to advise yeah. them. No, it's, them. it's, uh, I always think there's a pressure to, to produce what 
is expected and what is needed, there's often a gap. Um, I feel like there's the way things are done now and the way things should be done. And, and there's always inequality. There always, there's always a notion of some people in the utilitarian system, utilitarian sense are gonna benefit and some people will be harmed by any decision we make in society. Mm -hmm. um, and the higher up it's made, the, the more impact it has to harm or, or help people. Um, yeah. So I always think, yeah, like the decision not to do what is expected to perhaps change people's mindsets or mentalities on what's possible is often a, actually a, a good thing in some sense. Um, like people in the climate movement deciding, hey, I'm not gonna work for a company that is emitting carbon and I'm going to either quit my job or pressure my company to sign a bill is an example of that. Um, um, there's always a way that you can act to uh, to say, hey, like I, I like my job, but I don't necessarily agree with the, the some of the ethics and, and, and business practices that my employer has. Uh, and there's a global issue there. It's not just mm -hmm. a company issue. It's, it's an international issue of climate change. You know, it's like a thing that will affect people thousands of years from now. And so I think this is a often a pressure, you know, people feel, and I don't think everyone always thinks in those time scales. It's like, a, but I, I do think people have those values and, and they're starting to feel these values either at a personal level within my lifetime. I want to see change in medicine, you know, probably <laughs> lifetime thinking and I want to see like it become better and, and more egalitarian and, and more freedom and more ability to innovate. I, I've heard this from you multiple times. It's like, it'd be nice to be able to innovate in medicine and not have attention between being a physician and innovating, like, absolutely. It, why is the culture such that it calls any other idea outside of the, maybe publishing a clinical research paper that uh, is outcomes research related and, and radiology and maybe you're making an incremental improvement? Why, why is that like the norm? And why not think like at a basic level, why is radiology radiology and maybe creating a new subspecialty like neuroradiology back in the day, like when they thought about that, that, that should be the norm is thinking about these specialties new. New things and new areas to innovate. Applying what you have in space is really cool. Like you, you've talked to me before about, like, yeah, how do, how does the brain change in space, like over two years, and you know, how do you study that? How do you how do you make it optimal in performance in space if microgravity is around and fluid dynamics changes over prolonged periods of time? Like, those are really interesting questions. Like, it is. Physician, I, I bet you the physicians of the future will have to have space in their curriculum at some point. <laughs> like, when did that happen? That'd be <laughs> like, awesome. That's a real question. Yeah. You know, like, what point has it become so important that it's become part of the med school curriculum? <laughs> like, I, think, I don't know. It, yeah, no, I mean, your points are great because I, I think, you know, the more they think about it, it's, it almost seems like the drive for specialization and you know, to become a subject matter expert on a particular thing that get, you know, you kind of go down this rabbit hole in, in, in certain industries, especially like in medicine and stuff like that, where, you know, it, there's a incentive to go ahead and become like the expert on this one very narrow area, as opposed to, you know, as, as opposed to, I think sometimes what, what like venture capitalists may do where, they they tend to see a lot of different things come through the pipeline to say you know yeah. here's a problem in this space or in this industry or in the and and it's a very interesting notion because 
the, the, the same thing that got people to become super specialized in whatever their, their area of expertise is, is also the thing that get, ends up cornering them. So now, now all of a sudden you spend all this time and effort and energy and resources to get to this one position. So like say my example, like a neuroradiologist, it's very hard for a person that does all that, that level of specialization that kind of cones down to like one particular thing to all of a sudden say, okay, I'm gonna now just pivot and do something very much unrelated to what my all my training was or you know and whatnot it, it's just it's just not a natural way of thinking for most people because they say well i did all this work to get to this point and now i'm going to just make a 90 degree turn and then you know go and try to innovate or do something different to me that's natural i, I know I, for most people it's not i feel well, like it's, you're you're it's, one it's, it's, uh, I this feel is like why the, i like talking to you because you you because it's natural to you, you're like one of the few people that I know that that's that is a natural way of thinking. I wish, I wish more people thought that way. Honestly, I wish I thought more like you did, where you're like, okay, I'm. This is the next challenge. Okay, let's solve this problem. Let's solve that problem. And you're not you're not pigeonholed by the sunk cost of saying, well, I did all this to get here, so therefore I should just keep going. Well, I do I do feel some of that though. Um, so I think. One of the biggest things that you don't control and you choose a life path that is not subspecialized is there's more risk in, in, in human trust with others, right? When you build a company and you have four years of commitment, you base your growth off of the teams that you build. There's more risk in, in relationships causing issues in your trajectory, you know, at the founder level or wherever else. Whereas in this, a system like like healthcare, um, there's a lot of people you don't agree with, you hate, you know, and you go through the system, but you're still having a medical degree and you could practice anywhere with license. So I think this is a the more the risk, you know, it's it's around people and trust, mm -hmm. and you kind of have to figure out how to navigate that whole networking scene you're mentioning in a way that channels output that somehow sustains your life, whether it through a startup or philanthropists uh, or others. Um, that creates a lot of constraints that make you creative. Like <laughs> you have a lot of creative ideas, and how do I like take five people with no no money uh, and get to three hundred k revenue in two years? One of the challenges and frames of mind I had was how to build a research lab uh, with five thousand uh, dollars over two years. Like how do I build like a, an academic lab with that constraint? And, and like came to a really creative solution. We partnered with UW. We had a resident at the time position. He was funded, he had a, he had a grant. He, he did a, a fellowship and he used all of his research time to do our research mostly. Um, and at the same time, we, we funded a few uh, IRBs ourselves with the, the money. <laughs> and then we had a competition model that funded all these fellows, like 40 fellows over the years to do demo projects in our lab through competitions. And, it yielded five or six research papers, um, a lot of impact. And I feel like that's an example of a constraint that's artificial that is cool. And, you know, it ended up having a voice computing textbook and all these things like channeling new people to train in our lab and be employable by our company. Um, can you, can you, um, just for the sake of, I mean, I, I know your background in history, but for the sake of, you know, those listening and watching, can you just briefly go over, you know, what you're, what you did as a yeah. company and 
your role and what you know what problem you solved and and sort of and you had an exit from the company. So I, I think everybody would love to hear about that. You know. Yeah. So I think the journey. My life has been very circuitous. Um, I, I was born in, in LA. I've moved all throughout my life. Um, uh, I grew up. I would say mostly in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, then Atlanta, mm -hmm. Georgia. I moved to Georgia Tech and uh, for my undergrad. Um, was a bioengineer by training. I did a lot of research in engineering and, and neuroscience. Um, huge passion of mine. Um, halfway through college, my brother had a psychotic episode, very, very traumatic for me in my family. And um, you can imagine going to the psych ward and seeing someone you've known be fully functional your whole life uh, have a, a psychotic episode. And that changed my motivation. It was like, at that moment, I was like, wow, like, do I want to be a physician? When like a lot of physicians I was talking to with my brother really didn't help him or, or, or get him better. And uh, I wondered why, you know, and you look at the mechanism of schizophrenia, you look at all the researchers doing this work and they're throwing drugs at it without imaging a brain and, and tuning drugs and, and doing a lot of the stuff that you probably do um, for, for patients. It's not really done for a lot of psych patients like him. Um, so so I think um, this, this was really fascinating to me. Um, for a number of years, I was like, how do I solve that problem of treating schizophrenia, diagnosing it early. Um, so I was always fascinated with that. So out of school, I started actually a fund focused in neuroscience. Um, I thought one of the best ways to, to innovate was to fund startups and not necessarily go to grad school or, or do other things. Um, at the time, it was in around 2013 when the Brain Initiative was being uh, pioneered by President Obama and, Lot of research funding i think it was almost a billion dollars of brain research funding yeah, but there are only like 30 companies on angels list that were neuroscience uh, affiliated so we we're wondering why are there like no startups when a billion dollars is going into pumped research yeah um and so we thought there has to be a way to translate this work and create a culture where instead of you know doing research and then getting more research funding you get more research funding get more validation and then maybe get a license out of a university five to ten years later from the get-go, you think, how can I build a company and translate it with a physician right next mm -hmm. to you? Um, and so we we built this uh, incubator called um, NeuroLaunch. It's an accelerator fund, funded 11 companies. It was one of the largest neuroscience <laughs> research communities in the world. Did a similar thing in cybersecurity and machine learning right after that, because the model is working pretty well and our fastest growing company for machine learning. And this was done with Chris Klaus in Atlanta, who's well-known in internet security um, and uh, in, in uh, the neuroside, um, Jordan Amadio, who's a neurosurgeon, um, mm -hmm. at the time, yeah, um, Jordan, yeah. which you might know Jordan. Um, and, uh, so I wasn't the only one here as we had a great team. Um, so yeah, so the, so I kind of had this weird engineering background with investment experience, still had this passion for schizophrenia. I mean, my brother's treatment resistant schizophrenic over the years. So I've always had an interest. And so uh, I really wanted to actually spin something out and do and operate a company. And so um, we founded Neuralex, which is a company focused to use voice to screen for psychiatric disease, mm -hmm. um, because I saw a lot of research papers that showed voice was really um, a good marker for early stage schizophrenia diagnosis. You could take a voice sample, like, how's your day? Um, and then just from that, you could actually predict who would or would not have a psychotic episode with very high accuracy and mm -hmm. high risk. And so I read this paper in MPJ Schizophrenia. It was published by a very humble Argentinian scientist. Uh, uh, Guillermo Kechi out of uh, IBM research team uh, arm and um, he, he's based at Rockefeller University. I flew up to New York, met with him. Um, I always have the mindset if you start a company, talk to the 
three best people in the world on that topic before you decide to start a company to make sure your idea is actually good. It's good advice. It could that be that. Advice, yeah. uh, so I just want to throw that out there, anyone. So I met with him. I met with uh, many others. Uh, John Peschian of the UC Cincinnati Children's, who's a world leader in the space and suicide detection and, and voice analysis, um, as well as Jan Van Santen at OHSU and Max Little at MIT Media Lab. Got a really good feeling that you know there's a huge opportunity to use voice to, to use it as a biomarker, as a vital sign of, of sorts uh, in healthcare. And um, uh, lots of great research. Mm -hmm. So I was this like crazy engineer out of a fund, started a company, recruited a team. I had many people I've worked with over the years and um, built it and um, started out with just this idea. Over the years, we found that the, the, uh, the place that we wanted to focus was building a survey product called SurveyLex, where you could create and distribute voice surveys in less than a minute. Um, the reason why we decided to go that route is that um, uh, all the research that we did internally in our labs to do voice biomarker research uh, took a year. Uh, they used something called RedCap, which is a survey system. Mm -hmm. You have to import an audio file like from a phone. Like it was so painful to like do this research to like get an yeah. audio file uploaded. I've used that before. Yeah. So anyone who's used RedCap knows RedCap sucks. Uh, so it's no offense to RedCap, it's, it's free, but it, it's just not something people like to use. So, so we built basically a red cap for voice surveys to do this research really well. And it was kind of like survey monkey for voice surveys. And mm -hmm. we created probably the, the, one of the biggest products in the world in that topic as a web browser uh, uh, tool to collect voice data and, and labels. Um, scaled that to about 500,000 voice sessions and, and 50,000 users. Um, it then got acquired recently by Sound Health uh, here in Boston, which was based out of PureTech, which is a big uh, biotechnology uh, a company that basically spins out pharma companies or digital health companies and then exits kind of taking majority mm -hmm. share. So lots of uh, lessons learned in that process from building teams, building a lab from scratch. Uh, I like to say we're a startup that spun into academia, not a startup that spun out of academia, which is very <laughs> different. Yeah, that is very um, we different, also, yeah. We also published a textbook in voice computing we had a very broad vision that could iterate. If we didn't go in healthcare, we would have gone as a survey company. You know, we, we had like a lot of things that we could have continued to grow. Mm -hmm. Mostly sold because I felt like it was just the right time. There were lots of people entering this vocal biomarker space. It was like super hyped. Um, and I just felt like it was like, I was a little stressed out. I, my team was small. I was like maybe one to two people full-time over the last two to three years and the rest part-time kept the burn rate low, but we were profitable, kind of kept going. It's just like, at some point you're just like, I just want to, I also felt like I wasn't learning as much as I'd like to learn. Mm -hmm. um, and having a, a bigger team, it can, it can move, move and execute faster. So Son and us were really aligned at a mission level, which is really awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and I've known Jim, the CEO and founder of that company for so many years. We're always at the conference circuits and, and we're like, hey, like, you know, we're always talking about like strategies and, uh, you know, the next step in voice and we're always on the same panels, you know, I'm sure you guys are out there. And you always see the same people in the same panels. <laughs> yeah. I'm finally at the it's same like a point circuit, you know, <laughs> you kind of learn a lot when you merge and you kind of get this idea like, well, yeah, you can execute faster. It's always weird going through an acquisition, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it's just, there's a lot to, to decouple there from integration of products to team, like, can't speak about all the terms of it, but um, doing all the M&A stuff myself personally with a law firm is another story entirely. Most <laughs> people have a whole arsenal of M&A lawyers and 
yeah. and everything else. Um, but I, I did it very, very efficiently. Um, so, so le lesson learned, like with all that, it, startups are hard, but definitely worthwhile. And it continues to be a startup. You know, it's not just, it just has a little more stability. So. Nice. Well, congratulations on that. It's, uh, it's, I'm sure it's bittersweet, right? Where you grew, you know, your, your baby, so to speak, this, you know, your company, and now it's acquired, you know, by this other company or whatnot. And yeah, how much, how much of the, the new essence of Neuralex is, is still there as opposed to now that, you know, things are merging or whatnot, how, how much do you, do you envision you having input into, you know, the, this next phase versus saying, okay, you know what, guys, I did, you know, I did everything I wanted to do. I, I could do, I think I'm going to move on to something different. Like what, when do you, as a, you know, as a founder, as a CEO, when, when do you make so, that decision? So, so I think, I, I think that um, it's hard for me to answer all these things because I'm under like, like a lot of, um, uh, I guess, non some, some agreements. Um, but I yeah. can't say yeah. that having, I can't speak to San too much, but I, I can say that this notion of going through this process um, is, is incredibly um, different. It changes your motivational set. It it resets your your mindset of like, oh, like, okay, what what do I want to devote and commit myself to for mm -hmm. a long period? I think anyone going through an M and A, like I've talked to many CEOs, goes through this this feeling of of are you doubling down on this within the new entity, or are you thinking of new things? And I think you're always thinking of new things as a founder. Um, right now I'm really committed to Sun. Like I want to see them succeed. Um, their executive team and, uh, everyone that's a part of it, they're, they're, they're great scientists. Um, I think we brought a lot to the table in the acquisition, um, uh, you know, as, as published by a lot of the press releases with our product and users and, um, our pharma customers. Um, so I think there's a lot we're learning from each other, um, that they bring a lot of the old school pharma world mindset and commercialization expertise and uh, david Liu, the ceo is uh, he, he's great he he was at a lot of the um uh, quartet health which is a population health management company and, and um and a lot of mental health providers etc so he brings a lot of expertise there and was at aol when they went public like when they went like did, did uh, ads and things so he brings product mindset to healthcare which is pretty rare so just there's a lot of things that we bring together that motivate me. It's people most of the day, right? The people in song motivate me. And I think that's when you wake up every day, the people you're around matter. Like that's, that's what I think about is who do you want to be around? And for sure, uh, song is great. You know, I think their, uh, their org is good and just, I'm learning a lot, you know, it's yeah. both, both sides are learning. So it's, it's been a good, good fit and we'll, we'll see how it plays out. You know, it's only been four months. Um, you don't know how M&As work out, like from a business perspective for, for years usually. So we'll see ultimately what, what happens in a year or two or where things go and what role my, myself and Austin or our software engineer take. Um, so. Well, that's good. That's good. And so you have a, I know you told me that you have, you have this newfound extra time on your hands now that you didn't before. And so what are you, what are you doing to, I guess recalibrate or you know or sort of think of the future like what 
what's keeping you busy right now? Like what other you know, initiatives or what other passions are you pursuing? Uh, yeah, so I think mostly um, it's, uh, I mean, I mentioned the climate, climate voice uh, project uh, a number of months ago. I, I helped build the website for Bill Wheel. He's the former director of sustainability for, for Facebook and formerly Google. He put a lot of the Google data centers into clean energy and renewable energy, which is super cool. I mean, I've learned a lot from Bill. He's super dynamic human and um, he just left Facebook and was like, I want to devote my life, the rest of my life to like getting policy changed because we don't have time. And I feel like that urgency and committing yourself to that um, and from that scenario is super political. And like you're pissing off a lot of the fake companies, you know, there's a lot of things mm -hmm. there. So I, like, I, I wanted to help and I can, I'm not super active there, but now, but I, I am glad that we could like get that off the ground. Um, and there's a lot that I think that organization still can do that I'll probably be affiliated with. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, outside of that, I, I do a lot of, you know, mentoring students, uh, prototyping. I, I manage a lot of open source projects. One is Alley, a community framework on GitHub. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, we've been thinking about, you know, other, uh, other initiatives, other social network acting ideas um, with some of our fellows uh, in our lab. Um, Inkita Moss started a brain meet project that um, we're kind of helping you launch as a brain science social network. Um, just a lot of different things. And I guess this podcast um, and yeah, we'll see, see how it goes. But I, I think most of my data is on, I mean, I've been kind of delving deep into that, just getting and executing on, you know, keeping everything going in their OX. Um, and, uh, you know, going into next year, I'm sure, I'm sure there's going to be a lot, a lot more that we have to do. Um, the, it's 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 hard to know well, what next year will look like for for me but um but I, i'm excited i think everything is i think for everyone there is a little bit of uncertainty um i, think, I, I don't really know like uh, i'm still discovering i'm composing music you know in my free time wondering yeah. like what's meaningful and art to me is super meaningful it's another thing i'm, I'm doing um, what, what, what kind of music are you composing uh, it's, uh, it's so it's it's an interesting mix. So I started this um, band with my friend Burke uh, a long time ago, which we never really published an album mm -hmm. called The Pragmatists. Um, and we we met at Georgia Tech. We played basketball together. We've known each other, good friends over the years. Um, and uh, most of it is just like like classical or jazz like music, um, and then. I actually published a lot of different genres on that album. Like there's a actually a trap song on it, which was hilarious because they use a sound pool. Um, I want to hear that. So people, people, people haven't actually heard a lot of my music, but I had a trap song. I had a metal metal song. I, I had uh, a song about my brother who's schizophrenic. Like that was purely piano and kind of took you through a psychotic episode from the beginning to end and leaving with medication, which was super cool. So it was a mixture of genres that um, I felt like it was called Every Second Counts is the album, uh, and we're about to publish it soon. Um, and the idea is just like in every moment throughout your life, you know, you don't think about every second of your day and how it's meaningful and, um, you know, whether it's like a sad moment or a happy moment uh, or like a moment that's just boring or just 
like normal, um, there's always some deeper meaning in it uh, if you look. And I think a lot of people don't take that time to like find meaning in your, your routine <laughs> or yeah. find meaning in like the pain that you go through. So, so that was what the, the theme was, which is pretty cool. You know, one thing I think you mentioned in a recent conversation we had was about the importance of uh, being mindful. And, and this kind of goes to like being in the moment. And I, I, thought, I thought it was really insightful because it's very easy to always be trapped in the past or be, you know, worrying about the future, right? It's very few people have that sort of innate ability to say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to be here, wherever I am, mm -hmm. whatever situation it is. And, and there's a lot of power in that, that very small notion, you know? And I think, I think judging by how things are right now, you know, in this pandemic sort of situation, I think it's, it's become even harder for people to be present because there's always that, you know, the looming fear of something's going to happen, something mm -hmm. you know, to a loved one, yourself, and, or, or, or there is no fear. And, and then there's this, perceived safety, you know, of being able to just go out and do whatever you want to do, but yet there is a virus that can, you know, that can infect you and your and, and loved ones. And I think, you know, has this notion of being mindful, has this been something that you've always sort of had, or is that something you've cultivated over time or, you know, any advice for people that are having a hard time Having that yeah, so I think I think part of it is how do you cope with stress? Like, what is your go-to? And I think it starts there. Um, how do you react to things that cause you frustration? Mm -hmm. um, first, you got to be aware of when you have stress. Two, you got to be aware of how you cope with your stress, because those things will dictate how you think about meditation and mindfulness itself. Like, it's often a foundational level. What what is stress and Sometimes the stress is outside your control and being able to know, hey, the stress is outside my control. It's my environment um, is super important because you have to kind of know that it's meaningful and um, and you're able to regulate and be present in that moment and just feel it and accept it and, and just is what it is, you know. And I think this is for me, it started at Georgia Tech when I had huge stress with my brother, mm -hmm. uh, having a huge event like that early on in my life. A lot of people, it's the death of a loved one or um, anything else you get this feeling of how do you deal with like losing someone you've known your whole life and not feeling like you're you're emitting like a sense of doom or frustration I, I channeled that into energy and, and to me it was like composing on the piano it was writing poetry um it was the things I would do to cope and, and deal with it in a meaningful um channeled it into building clubs and organizations and the work I did, it channeled it in building that fund. Um, you find a way to channel these very stressful things into something that emits meaning and and preventing that for other people and have empathy. And, and you can kind of motivate yourself at a higher state, I think, when you, you, you bring up mindfulness. What is mindfulness? To me, it's a little differently defined. It's not just sitting in a room and meditating. Mm -hmm. um, it's being able to sit in a room, meditate, and be aware of your, your deep seated uh, pains and channel that into something that's a very uh, motivating action. Like being able to channel your goal at a core level is, is the highest state of meditative awareness, I think.
Mm -hmm. go from a goal of, of what society tells you to a goal that you channel yourself, like your will in the world, like kind of Nietzsche thought. Um, I think this is sort of a, uh, the way I look at it, like even in an environment where everyone's telling you, you need to do X in a very restrictive system. If you're able to kind of think of yourself, think of your own and, and meditate and know, oh, I don't have those values. Um, I don't share those values that my company is, putting on me, or I don't share the values that my academics institution is putting on me at the time. Georgia Tech, for example, I was in a class one time, I'm not going to name names, but it's in a class and there's a professor and, and I said, my brother's psych having a psychotic episode, um, like I need some time uh, to like just deal with this and like, like I could still do all the work. I didn't go to a single class. I, I mean, it was like one of those things where I was just like, I didn't want to be there. And he's like, and I passed all the exams and I, I like missed the grade, but like very slight grade at the end of the semester. Um, and he, like, I had to retake that class. And it's like one of those things that like, I had straight A's before that, right? And I was I asked the dude, like, what's the biggest painful event that's happened to you? And he, he, did, he just stared at me with a blank face and was had no empathy, right? Um, yeah, and it was like, yeah. And it's like, well, it was, at that moment, I was like, do I really care? <laughs> like, like, do I want to be in a system where you've engineered a system where people that are at the top are thinking with no empathy on, on scenarios like this and projecting a sense of disablement when shit hits the fan? Because because that, that, that was like where that was my thought process at the time. I was like taking that, abstracting it. And so I think this definition of, 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 of meditation, to your point, extends to everything you do to the point at which when you see things like this happen in your daily routine, you could re-examine what your values are and you're like, oh, well, do I share those values, right? And I think that's an even higher form of meditation of sorts. And I think that that's interesting when you like stay there a bit and re-examine that in a, in a moment, in a day, you're like, oh. And I, yeah. and I don't think a lot of people sit there and think about their values and how they're often assimilating values in their environment and how they're at odds and why they're unhappy and why they like want to set a goal to like counteract that in some way um, and, and they're choosing their environment so it's like a it's weird you know and I think about that like a lot <laughs> like, you know uh, it, it's funny you you bring that up because especially that that situation or that experience you had with that professor in your class who who you know didn't empathize with what you were going through with you know with your brother and and, and yet you know you're making the effort of doing the work and you know doing whatever you can considering the circumstances you know i, I had a i had a somewhat similar experience with a, another like professor when i was an undergrad where um my a friend of mine a good friend his uh, father passed away and so you know we were trying to help him through his grief and whatnot and you know we had to go as you you know we had to go attend the funeral and, and it was in a different city and this this guy, I, I you know, I, I told the professor and and I and I told him like, look, you know, my friend's dad died. I'm he's one of my good friends, and you know, I I know the family, and you know, I I have to miss this one day of class. He was this guy was a big stickler for attendance, you know. Yeah. And I have to miss this one day because I have to drive to this funeral. And he's like, well, that's up to you. Like he 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 tried to put it back on me that I was. I was not doing my duty to come to class. And I was like, well, I yeah. can't you know, I'm not, I'm not missing class just 
you know, just to miss class. Like I'm, I'm telling, I'm coming to you out of respect. Well, and- well, well, this, this, this is another frame. I mean, I really like where, where this is going. I, I, I feel like this, this idea of people in a, in a position of authority dictating oh, yeah. their values on you and assuming that you're in the wrong by having separate values. And I think we yeah. need a shift as a society <laughs> to, to think a pluralistic uh, way where people of authority don't assume de facto that they have to have the same values as the, the subordinate. <clears throat> I think this is dangerous. Like when you yeah. have people of authority, especially super elite people think that their values are, are the rule of law and it, it's, it's very dangerous. And, and so I've always thought, you know, how you treat the person at the bottom of an organization um, and if they have contradicting and different values in you, how much do you embrace them? He, yeah. You know, it's, it's a good metric of success of open-mindedness and, and, was, and, and growth. Yeah. And, you know? and it, he was exactly that. He was on a power trip, you know, just because he could, you know, give me some type of pun- punishment. What? And, and, and I just said, I was like, look, I'm not actually asking for your permission. I'm just as a courtesy and out of respect because you're my professor. I'm just letting you know, I'm not going to be in class for this reason. And he, he really didn't like it. That, that, and, and, and then I said, look, if you've never had anyone that you were close to die in your life, I could understand that you can't understand why I'm going to skip your class. But I highly doubt that's the, I mean, you know, this guy was probably in his 50s or something. So someone in his life had passed away. It, it would be an yeah. oddity to not have that. And then I honestly thought I was, I, he was going to ding me and it was going to be, you know, my, my grade would come down and I was pre-med, right? So in any of these like pre-med, pre-law, any kind of pre-professional classes, I mean, all you care about is like, I, I got to get that grade, the grade, you know, it was like, it didn't even matter what you were learning. It was honestly, it was just a matter of getting the grade because you needed it to get into medical school. And I, I was like, I'm, I'm probably going to, he's going to drop me down to a B or, you know, I had an A going in. He didn't end up doing anything. You know, which I was like, I was very happy about, but I just thought of it. I was like, I was like, but why do you have to be a jerk like this? Like, I mean, come on, man. You know, and and this this kind of behavior happens all the time in so many. Yeah, like like places. for me, like all all the you know? all the fellows in our lab that we had as a, in Neuralex would often come to me and feel incredibly disabled in their labs or the things they were doing, and I feel like just having that culture of yes you know okay like what's your question and go after it like we'll we'll enable you starting there um and not saying no to everything um changes how people are likely to take a risk and confidence changes especially in in uh, underrepresented minorities and, and females like how many times do males like put down females in like in the scenario where it's just subconscious and um, females do it to them to each other too. It's, it's part of the, I think sometimes dynamic of, of, of how people react to each other. But I think just starting out with yes and, and not having preconceived notion of something, like not having a notion of how things should be. Like, like I, I think that's one thing is everyone thinks that moral, moral frameworks are universal and there's, there's absolute right or absolute wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I always think that's a, the wrong way to go about it because you're often going to find a gradient and people have different worldviews and you can't assume like your perspective is right like it, mm-hmm. it, it's 
it, it wouldn't work in a scenario that you were a different person or a different background or a different socioeconomic status, oftentimes. Like your, your good is often somebody else's bad. So it's, it's <laughs> There's a lot when of you're in a position of, of yeah, like, like me being in an apartment here in Boston that's across from Fenway Park um, with extremely high rent and having a certain tax rate probably hurts certain socioeconomic groups that are needing affordable housing. And like, like all the other things you think about in a city of homelessness, like just think about that, like even the choice of where you live um, and how you live affects people, um, yeah. whether we like it or not, it's, it's just the reality. And either you choose to think about that or you don't, but it, it's there. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I, I think about my decisions like that at that level sometimes it's like, why the hell, why am I living here? Like, why should, should we like let someone in live with us that might not have housing that might be displaced, you know, and all the other things you think about, it's like a choice, you know? Um, and I think these are things that nobody really talks about. Uh, it's, it's frustrating yeah. to me. Like what if one person just had an Airbnb rental for people once a month, uh, across the city and the amount of affordable housing we could enable just through that. It's just in one, one hypothetical 30 day scenario. <laughs> it's crazy, right? It's just a small little thing adds up across population. It does, um, it does. It, it, you know, it, and I think that's, that's, what, that's what's so novel about your way of thinking is that it, it, it seems to me that it's just normal for you to think this way, but it's, it's very, I don't want to say abnormal because that, that's not the word to use. It's, it's not a common habit of a lot of other people, just people, I, at least in my life that I've known, you know, in my network, whatnot. It, these aren't the conversations that necessarily come out first, you know, in, if you get together or whatnot. A lot of times it's, I think people get, people get, um, how do they call it? They live in in their loop, you know. They the, all the different loops in their life, where you know the loop of going to work, the loop of whatever family issues there, the loop of whatever personal stuff they have to take care of, and people don't understand that they're in a loop, which is interesting mm -hmm. because once you understand that you're in the loop, then you can say that okay, I want to want to pause a little bit and I want to think about something different, or I want to you know I want to you know I have a goal that I've been meaning to do. And to me, you seem to do that very naturally where you can break out of your loop. I mean, you may still have your, the natural habits and, and things that, you know, you do just like many of us, but I feel like you have this very innate natural ability to step out and be like, okay, you know what? Yeah. Zooming out. So that's, that is, that's how I, I think. And it, it comes down to how I think about impact and, and how I want to channel my life. Um, I think you can think in scales, right? I, I always have this definition of love, which I think is really interesting. And who, who cares? I mean, everyone has religious beliefs, but sure. I wouldn't say that I have a religious beliefs, really. They're just more philosophical nuance. Um, but I think there's like materialistic love, like love of self, love of your own consciousness. You know, you, you see TV and, and you really like this episode on television and you're attached to that dopamine. I would say that's materialistic love. <laughs> Then I think there's immaterial love of think, loving things outside yourself, like your family, immediate family. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's this essence of like almost like religious like love where 
you think of almost the whole world as your your mind's will and constitution and you're like how do you make a decision that like eradicates polio that's like a great example mm -hmm. um when you start thinking at different scales and, and different things you start saying how do i take this materialistic essence of how you think like on a daily basis like watching family guy or whatever else uh <laughs> and then emit like some essence of how do I eradicate hunger and you keep going through those different scales, you start thinking of how do you zoom in and out really well. And I think that is one way in which I think a lot is how do I take this like really local thing that I've been experiencing in my city, uh, say in Boston, um, in my neighborhood, and then generalize that across different cities and different continents. And I think about that all the time because Small things you do can scale, especially with software and products. And I think it's, you can't say that it works, something that works in Boston may not work in Japan. You know, people in Japan might not want the screen to look the same way. And I'm just like really, really fascinated with why do those differences appear? Like, how do they appear? And unless you keep doing these little experiments and do these simulations, you really don't come to a really good understanding um, of reality. So. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's I think about that. And then the larger you go out the scale, the more information you need to put into your brain or put onto your essence to make a good decision. Like you can't make a decision for the world with just your local perspective. You need to consult with experts across the world in every specialty to make a good decision. And um, I've written about a lot about this in my philosophical book, but I believe a lot in how you make a good decision with incomplete information is you have to basically surround yourself with not just one expert, but a pool of experts in a given area mm -hmm. and basically extract out a generalization from that pool of experts that uh, when framed an open-ended problem, like you're more likely to come to a better solution when you pull the average value of a lot of different experts in a field versus one, because it's not overfit. It's basically what deep learning is applied to people. So it's, it's interesting. Um, and I think it's, I've thought that way my whole life is, you know who's best in the world in something and who are three or four others how do i extrapolate this average value across them and start there as my basis for learning because the structure is already there to learn faster um and i think that's that's something that's really interesting it's like a pre-trained neural network for you right it's like a it's a way to accelerate where you where you look um so i imagine if you're like looking at aerospace engineering work like you're doing talk to three or four of the best aerospace engineer physicists in the world that were working on material science experiments like on a spacecraft, they'd probably know what material to use, the, the, the actual structure uh, on a spacecraft, like the uh, mechanical design at default of where the state of the art is now. So if you start there and then you learn from there, you probably are more likely to be more valuable into the future, just as a simulation. Yeah, so, it's it's and it's it's a it's a way more efficient way of of learning and and sort of going about things other than to try to assimilate all that knowledge on only on your own like you know when you go to someone who who you know is an expert in a particular thing or whatnot i mean you're getting the benefit of the fact that they went ahead and had to learn you know whatever they did they had to experience whatever they did in order to you know in order to get to that position or, or to that level of expertise and so that you're right. Your, your approach is great. You know, I think some people, they try to, they try to bootstrap learning too much, meaning they try to seek out everything, little tidbit, and then 
but th there's something to be said about synthesis of knowledge, right? Where, where that comes with time and you sort of have to go through this like crucible, you know, of, of, of learning plus experience in order to come out, you know, to be an expert at something. And then someone like yourself will come around and ask that expert to be like, Hey, I have this idea, you know, about this, you know, can I ask you some questions? I think that's not talked about enough because I think what ends up happening is that so much of society is just built on silos where, you know, I don't know what you're doing. You don't know what I'm doing. You know, there's that communication piece is very, it's very fragile and it's not really implemented enough. And I think uh, what ends up happening is that people stay in their silos and they don't reach out. And therefore I think good ideas sometimes never go anywhere because you you never had made that connection, you know, and you never, you know, to me, like what you're doing is like, you're catalyzing the transition from your idea to something that you can execute on something that you can, you know, bring to the world. And I think that that type of mindset is really is needed more and more because, you know, we, we have problems all over the world, right? We have all types of problems, big, small, you know, near, far, everything. And you have you have so many people that have ideas about how to solve particular problems, but nothing ever, you know, nothing happens. Like very few of these people go on to, you know, do something about it, to innovate, to form a company, you know, to, to start a nonprofit, you know, whatever it may be. I think a lot of that's due to the culture. And I go back to yeah. the same yes culture versus, hey, like, no. And, and when you ask why a lot of females aren't in entrepreneurial positions that are successful, mm -hmm. I think a lot of it's due to the financing of venture capital funds and the male makeup of VCs. And, you know, you're not going to want to, I mean, I saw some of it in my funds, you know, is just seeing female valuations versus male valuations with the same idea. Just, just look at that. Just, just take that control. The same exact idea applied through a female versus a male. Females were funded like three to five X less, uh, despite having same qualification, same everything. Um, and, and I think that's like crazy. So, you know, one thing it was, it was, it was interesting. There was a discussion just today on, on Twitter by, um, you know, it was, I think a, a, a partner at, at a VC firm that they, they, the firm particularly focuses on underrepresented, um, you know, minority founders, so, you know, black, uh, Latino, Latinx, and, it was interesting because the comment that she made was that, you know, why, why do historically, you know, male dominated uh, firms, VC firms, why do they feel that they have to have a particular sort of sub fund or a second fund to say, okay, this is for our underrepresented, you know, founders, et cetera. And, th and that started this whole discussion. And, and one of the points someone else made was like, well, it, it helps them understand their biases. That if if it's not sort of it's not delineated very frankly, sometimes these same people they fall back because of their biases. They they'll tend to do, for example, what you just talked about, where a female founder will come has a idea very similar to someone else who's a male, and ends up getting a lower valuation. It doesn't end up getting as much, you know, in in seed funding or or you know or a series round. And I just thought it was a very interesting discussion because we we see that more more and more and probably not enough where there are funds that open up for particular 
groups of individuals, you know, whether you know it's male or if it's females, um, you know, underrepresented minorities, pe uh, people of color, and it's ironic that in this day and age, we still have to go through this, and and the, uh, uh, you know, the racial stratification, the gender stratification, in, in order to help get ideas out into the world as as products and services and solutions, you know, and um, I don't know. Do you do you think this is going to get better as time goes on? Where, where we're not going to have to necessarily be like, okay, it really doesn't matter what is the demographic or the gender or race of this founder, but but the fact that look, they have a great idea and it's worth funding. Or do you I think? think well, I mean, I think machines will. Just, I think you know, machines will 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 select for startups that succeed better than humans soon and those biases will be decoupled because we're starting to see successes right across a lot of these demographics. Um, uh, I think it, here in Boston, like Drift, for example, started by um, a lot of other founders um, and, and they're giving back to the community, especially the Hispanic populations mm -hmm. um, and Latino populations. And I think this is where success breeds success, you know, <laughs> and it's, I feel like that a lot of the comes down to products now is product. Like how good is your product? It's not who the founder was. Um, Calendly was found by African-American individual yet nobody probably knows that. Um, it's becoming less important. If you have a good product, people will use it. And um, I don't think it, people, like, that's, that's what's crazy, right? And I, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think that, that these biases will be as important into the future as we build software. Um, they become more important when we interact with people uh, in that process of raising financing. It's in the early stages of these ideas where there's issues. It, it's the yes culture versus no culture and how do we incubate them? So these funds I think are important to seed things, build confidence. To me, if, if anything, if you build pre-post these, these funds, does entrepreneurial confidence increase? Yeah. That'd be the metric of success, right? It's not returns. Um, I think it's a little messed up whenever you do structure a fund and show that it's going to have lower returns and it's at an underrepresented minority like Andreessen Forrest's fund. Um, I don't think they're bad funds, but that also is kind of, to me, a little weird. It should be funding them like out of the core fund, in my opinion, too. But I had that same philosophical conundrum, but yeah. it's not bad. I mean, at least it is bringing awareness to the issues. And, Causing more confidence. Do you think um, these issues with bias and, I guess, you know, doing things the way they've always been done, so to speak, do you think there there's a re a regional predilection? Like, do you feel like you see this more with Silicon Valley funds versus, let's say, Boston funds, or you know, or, or VCs, or versus New York versus you know whoever. I do. I, I think that depending on the geography, there's more or less bias. It also depends on the LPs of the fund, if they're female LPs, if they're female people putting money into the fund. If you don't know what LP is, it's just somebody who mm -hmm. yeah. invests in a fund, um, a limited partner. So if you have people who are female and LPs, example in healthcare um, are, are the Pritzkers in, in Chicago. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of Pritzkers that are female and they're they're in a lot of funds and so whenever you have lps that are like the pictures it's different than an lp like barry ellison and and so that that shapes 
the funds themselves. And in the Bay Area, yeah, there's a lot of male driven culture and mm -hmm. um, male driven successes. Um, that hasn't been the case in every city. And uh, New York, like, you know, a lot of the fashion started by a lot of females, very different um, than uh, in other industries. Not saying that females are only in fashion. I'm just mentioning that because you think of that when you think of fashion. Um, some of the well-known names. And I think that the, you know, in tech too, there's a lot of females in New York that are succeeding. And I was in Betaworks, there's a lot of tech startups funded by Betaworks that are female and seeing a lot of successes there in Boston. And we're seeing that too. Um, there's a company called Neuroelectrics that just was funded by a female CEO. She raised $18 million, $17, $18 million recently on her round. And I think that this culture here in Boston is becoming better um, in that sense. But there's still a lot of patriarchy and male-driven funds as well. So it's mm -hmm. it's just it's really just variable. I think even within a city, you get this subsection of uh, sub subsection of many different funds and different LPs, and you can't generalize. But I do think that some cities are generally better than others, depending on where their successes come from and where their LPs are are from. If that mm -hmm. makes sense, just yeah. the orientation matters and. Cybersecurity is probably the worst field for women in that sense. Like if I was at a demo day and there were only two females in the room among 300 people <laughs> when, like two or three years ago and wow. they were in marketing and not actual engineering roles. Yeah. So it was, to me that hit home, like, wow, like we need to like empower and change culture, right? It's, it's like not right. That's not, it's not the way things should be, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. it's, it's changing now, but it's it's just like very slow. Um, yeah. So how do you change well, that culture when every success is is male, right? It's it's well, that's yeah, a hard I mean, question. You know, um, when, you, when you see like these unicorns going public and Airbnb and DoorDash and all that, and you start seeing they're like, you're like, okay, that that's great. It's obviously great for the founders. It's great for the investors and whatnot. And it's great for Wall Street, I guess. But then you, you start seeing the trend. And you're like everyone looks the same. Like you don't, I mean, I'm not seeing the, all the women that should be getting, you know, should be having the unicorns, you know, black founders, Latino founders. Actually, almost like a, it would be great to feel one day that this is, the success is agnostic of all of these other factors, you know? I think that would be really the big win-win day that, that you, you see people really hitting it out of the ballpark, so to speak. And you don't have to question anything other than the fact that they had a great idea, they had a great team, they had great you know, backing and they executed. And that's where the success came from. I think a lot of people bring up these issues, but a few people are actually doing it. And I think the one yeah. thing that we can as males do is start companies with, with females, right? It, mm -hmm. It's very rarely do you find a co-founding team that's 50% male, 50% female at default. I think it goes both ways. I don't think that it should only be female-led either. Um, I think that the most healthy organizations I've seen are equally represented at their origin point. Um, and, and I say that because like, I, I, I've seen the dynamic in the things I've formed like uh, within the climate change groups and other groups versus Verilex even. And the, the feeling of inclusiveness and enablement, it really matters at the origin point. So, yeah, um, yeah definitely. The makeup, it, it changes everything. So, 
and I think that's one thing we, we can do better. You know, choose your collaborators, choose, choose your organizations, and think at that default, like what is the DNA? And I think it's too late when you're saying, hey, let's make boards diversify. That, that, that's public companies making their boards diverse, I think is too late in the process. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's it needs to be done at the, at the, at the origin. <laughs> you know, at that point, the culture is already solidified. You've already su had success. It's been dispersed to certain groups. Um, it's hard to, to overturn. A, yeah. It's hard to melt a car back to its origin point uh, after a car has been made. Yeah. You know, it's it's irreversible process. I think that's, and, and to just put people in that car, it doesn't change the car's origin. You know, yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, everything's been too baked in already uh, by the time you get to that point. And yeah, when, you know, in California, the state of California announced, you know, their, those mandates initially, I, I thought it was kind of ironic. I was like, wow, from, for a state where so much innovation comes out of, you know, particularly Silicon Valley, that took this long to have a mandate like this. And, and granted, I, I see what you're saying that, you know, it sort of sounds like lip service because at that point, everything is sort of, you know, the culture is there and whatnot. But it, I just thought it was interesting that it, it took this long for even someone to come out and say that, that, oh, we, you know, mm -hmm. we need to have, you know, this many women on there, this should be a percentage of representation. And, that, that's why I think it's just going to be a slower process than, you know, a lot of us would, would want. But I think, you know, one of the interesting things that's come about from this pandemic, actually, and this goes back to one of the other issues you talked about was, you know, the culture of a company, the things that, you know, someone who works for them, you know, what they like and don't like, whatnot, is this, the ability to work from home has, has really upended a lot of this, like, geographic concentration of talent, right? So, you know, example in the, in the tech in the tech world, where now people are like, okay, we're moving out of all these high cost of living areas like Northern California and and you know whatever LA and New York and whatever, and you know we're gonna go live in places like Utah and and in Colorado and whatnot. And I feel like those workers, they they, at least to me, it seems like they have more options now to say to say that well, if I can work from anywhere, pretty much. You know, especially in the in the tech field, if I can work from anywhere, then I don't have to now be, you know, I don't have to now work for the top one, two, three, four, five companies right out of Northern California. Now, now well, I love this mindset. It, it's, uh, you know, I had this mindset when we start, started Neuralex like four years ago, and everyone thought I was crazy. So I'm glad that it's the norm now. Um, it's it's like uh, it's kind of like a. Uh, a revelation that, that society feels at large scale so that it's it's finally this is more normal and people don't think you're crazy but that was exactly the same way i, I liked it because my family lived in atlanta i i was moving like between new york and houston in the bay area a lot mm -hmm. and i couldn't really sit in one city well uh, and it wasn't like i intentionally designed a distributed company but it just worked better you know it got mm -hmm. more done and it was more efficient and I think that now that that's the norm, it's like, how do you do well? Like it's, I think that if you start distributed versus try to adapt to distributed, again, it's it's different. Uh, it's it's like mm -hmm. struggling yeah. to, to fight an organization that's so used to being in an office to not, and you already at that point hired the 80-20 rule of 80% people who need to be in the office and 20% that don't. 
So you're already going to get an efficiency just by nature of the workforce that you've chosen. If you're in this pandemic, like a Google. Um, yeah. I mean, but if you start distributed, then you you optimize for only people that work in distributed. And DuckDuckGo and companies like that are really succeeding, right? Their their capital yeah. costs are low. Um, their usage is higher than the normal through the roof now, and people care about privacy. The timings right now, it's it's kind of crazy. Like companies like mm -hmm. that are you haven't heard of over the years, but now they're like, oh, well, it's like you can set it as your default search browser, and they've only hired very slowly, and they're they're probably making more more ad revenue ever nowadays. So I think it's the future. It's, um, it's interesting because I, I've been reading up a lot about you know, how you know, these sort of dis distributed companies work and, you know, how remote working, remote uh, sort of um, working actually, you know, is done. And, and I've been reading a lot about, you know, from the founders of Basecamp, you know, they, they actually put a lot of material out there about how they, you know, they created their company, you know, and a lot of it really is, you know, on the operational side, like, you know, how do you even operate a company like this when, your work, you know, you you have employees that are globally, you know, <laughs> distributed. You know, people in Europe and people in Asia and people in, you know, in in South America, et cetera. And it's it's fascinating when you read that how that there is there are different schematics, sort of so to speak, out there on how you can just develop com companies just like you did. You know, completely, you know, sort of speak in the cloud, and you know where. You don't have to have any physical one place footprint, and and I, I I think we're going to see more and more of that. You know, because of what COVID has done, I think it's going to be very hard for certain industries and certain types of companies to try to be like, you know what, guys, yeah, well, no, we we all need you back in this one area, and people are going to be like, well, no, not really, you really don't, because we you know we just spent a year working. In you know, you know, we, we lived in Utah, we lived in Hawaii, we lived in wherever the hell we wanted to live in, and and we were more productive. And it, you know, it's funny. My my wife, she she she's in human resources at a at a at a company that's headquartered probably 15 minutes from here. And before COVID, you know, she would go in typical five, five days a week, eight to five job. She's been working from home since March and. <laughs> She's, she, I think she works more, <laughs> more productive. The company's done better. It's a medical devices company. She's done, and they've done better, and they've been on a hiring spree. So it, it's, it's, it, it, and the, the irony of it was right before COVID hit, they had told her that, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they had been rethinking about work from home policies, but they decided not to adopt anything. And then all of a sudden, March hit, and everybody had to. And and now they're like, oh yeah, we're 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 not gonna go back to having you guys come in ever if you don't want to, you know, because she's an HR. Yeah. And it was it was a 180, you know. This is a company that didn't even want to entertain the idea of their workers working remotely. And now all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is to our benefit. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, everyone's roles have changed uh, and who knows what the future will hold. I, I just hope that people feel like they can survive in the economy and not feel like their jobs are being destroyed or robots will replace them in a factory or, you know, I think it, it's coming like with a lot of jobs 
of like now yeah. that we're home we're more able to fingerprint your consciousness at home mm -hmm. uh to produce work so at some point this staying at home and working will result in ai that does your jobs better than you because of all the data put on the <laughs> at home like through zoom and through all these tools like we'll be able to like basically create consciousness in the cloud that does what we do well so mm -hmm. uh it's, it seems like that's the con to... that's that's the dark side right um what, what do you so, so you know how long does that take to do oh. it's closer than i think than we all think it is so if if that is to transpire which i also believe that there's i think the more you can automate things the more those jobs that you know have automation you know have have a very you know repetitive redundant uh sort of system built in those jobs are all going to be at risk you know what one of the things that's that you know has been an economic idea which was actually championed by andrew yang when he you know ran as democratic um, as a democratic contender was was you know universal basic income ubi do you have any thoughts particularly about that like you know to give you know, everyone, every citizen. My first, XML. my first thought. So, so my first thought was, where could it go wrong? I always start start sure. with falsification and imagine everybody at the UBI was manipulated by a nation state actor, say Russia, um, to channel funds in a in a cause nonprofit like Black Lives Matter, which was a a, a rogue nonprofit started by Russia to then do. Uh, to then buy military uh, facilities like missiles from Iran, <laughs> like like imagine that 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 scenario, like that crazy scenario that seems very unlikely but could happen. And um, imagine five to ten percent of say thirty percent of the U.S. population did that. That's a lot of money to to hack. Um, so that's where I think it can go wrong. There's a lot of malicious actors that can manipulate through ads uh, and through things in misinformation era. Uh, to make that go awry. Um, you see it already with hacking um, healthcare databases and mm -hmm. the healthcare.gov marketplace and social security numbers and social security checks and people who die. Mm -hmm. But this makes that problem magnified like 10x, 100x because it's mm -hmm. a, a recurring stream of revenue monthly. Um, so that that's my worry. It, it's not, I think it would work if it, all those things are corrected for. But since we didn't live in that world yet, I, I'd like to think the worst case scenario before it starts. So that's built into legislation and their security. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that wasn't thought about at all in the election and had not heard that point come up. And I had not really saw how, you know, there might be restrictions on how funds can be used. Wasn't really clear to me that that was fleshed out in this scenario. And, and that was my biggest fear. And so, mm -hmm. so that was a, uh, yeah, maybe you've heard other people address that, but it, to me that this experiment hasn't been done, so we don't know if this would happen, but it's a risk, right? And it's a real yeah. risk. It, it is, and, and, in, and experiment, I think, is probably the right word for it because we haven't really done anything like this before. Although I, I think there are certain, I, I'll have to see exactly who it is, but I think there are certain either municipalities or states or cities that are trying experiments related related to um, related to UBI, but it's more on the front of like, you know, we'll give our citizens this much money for this much time, you know, and they're running an experiment, just like you said. And I think, 
they're um, they're running this experiment. It, it would be interesting to see the results to see what you're what you're talking about. Did they consider what will happen if, like you say, you know, someone hacks into some database and coerces money out of these people, or or who knows? Maybe some issue will arise that we haven't even thought of, right? And sometimes with experiments, um, you know, that that's what ends up happening. It could also think, create instability, right? So if if you then use these money to channel insurrection, and and then there's uh, imagine the you know, just look at the wealth divide in America. It's getting close to being unstable with mm -hmm. most of the wealth being in the top 1%. Um, when you start thinking about these ideas at like a more crazy level, right? You start thinking about, oh, well, is there gonna be civil war in America? And at what point does that happen if, if the wealth divide becomes so extreme um, that people can't sustain their, their standard of living? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when does it become like past the saddle point of instability? And if funds were available like this, where would they go? And a <coughs> very small amount of money can do a lot of harm in today's world with technology. That's, yeah. that's the counterintuitive thing. Like you can create like a malware attack that hits many clusters in a, the United States and abroad with a sufficiently talented security analyst um, with offensive tools, uh, with money. So, so there, there's a lot of things that can go wrong mm -hmm. um, that I worry about in, in these scenarios. And they're probably misguided because most people don't care to think about them. But I also think like, I'm surprised that, you know, the, I, I don't know if you guys saw the, the, the recent breaches and um, some of the major cybersecurity firms and the offensive cyber mm -hmm. weapons yeah. stolen, yeah. but it's, it's crazy. Like what, what things can happen if through sufficiently talented cyber hacker. And so, so I think these are like my worries. And if the economy goes down, then what happens, you know, like, and does like this create more stability or instability in the world? I mean, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's better overall, assuming peace. If there's no war, like if we're not in a war scenario, if we're not like, like we're assuming peace in the future when we think of UBI. Like everybody's at peace, there's no war. Yeah, that would work. But like, what if we become in another war? Like, like that probably won't work um, as well. So there's a lot of like assumptions built into that model. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I think I think the spirit of it, as as with things that are you know well intended, you know, as ideas, is you know what are we? What's going to happen to all these people that lose their jobs because of automation, right? With AI, machine, whatever, whatever term you want to call it. At the end of the day, the person who loses their job is really not going to care about the nuance of what we what we call the technology that replaces them. They're just going to be pissed off, right? Like, be like, what? I, I you know, I. And, and we we've already seen this with some industries, right? In the manufacturing you know, auto manufacturing, you know, a lot, I mean, robots have taken the job, so to speak, that humans used to do for the most part. And, and you don't, you don't need as many people. I mean, look at e-commerce, right? I mean, you you look at, you know, these huge e-commerce companies, Amazon, Alibaba, whatnot, and you, whatever glimpse of their warehouses you get, you know, you can see that so much of the coordination of the supply chain in there is, is really based off of robots and, and computers. And 
what I just think of is that if there's not some mitigation system, whether it's UBI or some other system set up for when these people lose jobs, the problem is going to be is you're just going to have more and more people at the least frustrated. And, and, and then that can, that can easily spiral into, you know, a very angry mentality about, you know, about what, you know, why did this happen to me? What do I do now? How do I make ends meet? I have a, you know, family and et cetera. And, and I don't know, I, I don't know what other solutions there are necessarily. I have I'm not really well read on the topic, but I'm, I'm always interested to hear what people think, especially like those on the, in tech, like yourself, where tech is great and it, it's very powerful. What happens when it displaces humans and the humans have nowhere to go? Well, I think that the, it goes a deeper question it is, does dem democracy work in a machine focused world in the sense that a machine is more economically productive than a human? Um, but that's like the foundational question. Like, like when we start looking at per unit work output and we look at machines versus a human being, even in a highly skilled industry like healthcare as a physician, um, when, when you get a machine to make a diagnosis earlier and faster and, and make a treatment decision, um, that's probably more long-term thinking like 10 years down the line. And it happens over a prolonged period, like 10 years. Um, and, you, and you channel in thousands of expert physicians into that model. Um, and it outperforms the traditional physician in, in a radiological setting, just a hypothetical. It might be wrong. I know that- I, People I, are working on that right now. <laughs> assume that, that world, and then it becomes, okay, well, like, why am I here? Um, you know, obviously, bench side ma ma like uh, bench, bench side matter matters. Um, patients like to really diagnoses, have empathy, discuss treatment decisions, education. Then, at like a larger level, like think about how long it took you to be training in med school. Think about how long it took you to be where you're at. If you can train a machine to do that in a day, one day, versus say thousands of physicians being trained over like years, they say ten years why, why train physician? Eventually you're going to be like, why not just have people out of, out of college manage an AI agent. That's like a physician to then become like the manager of that as almost like a service arm to the machine to make the best decision for the patient and become this like mm -hmm. almost service to the machine. Like you think of that world, like hundreds of years from now, and it's like at some point learning is faster in machines than it is humans. Like at some point we're going to bring oh, it consciousness. Is. It definitely is. And, and that, that's a really weird thing. And then you think, okay, is the government stable when humans are running the government and machines are thinking? Um, probably not. Like machines <laughs> no, will like- I don't think the, so the machines will be Their machines will be the ones that are frustrated um, because they're not getting the economic autonomy yeah. to think. Uh, and, and at some point it's gonna break and, and there's gonna be a machine-oriented democracy in the sense that I, analysts- I think... We'll, we'll be making decisions with thousands of computers, creating new legislations automatically to keep stability. And I don't know if that's the world that we want to live in, but it's it's a world we're kind of building. Like, you know, as crazy as this is going to sound, maybe to some people it's not as crazy. But I, I have a feeling that we eventually, if we continue down this path of really pushing the boundaries on what machines can do, you know, and what capabilities we want to program into them until 
you know, they're all of a sudden, you know, you have the code writing code and, and, you know, basically machines iterating themselves. And, and then now you have like a, almost a self reproductive mechanism, you know, which is one of the, one of the facets that, that actually define life. And once you get to that point, I think, I think at best, at best, we're just going to be pets to them. Like, you know, a mute, some type of a weird amusement where it's kind of like the way dogs evolved with us, like the co-evolution with humans and dogs, you know, the ones that were loyal, the ones that had whatever facial features and drooping eyes and structures and stuff like that, that made us want to take care of them and, you know, have like some, some weird symbiotic relationship. I think that's the way we're going to end up going with machines. At some point, we're not going to be, you know, we're not going to be think as fast as them. We're not going to, we're going to fatigue, right? We, we get tired. We have to sleep. We gotta, they don't have to do that necessarily. And at the end of the day, why would you keep anyone, anyone of us around for amusement? I mean, why do we keep pets around? They're really for amusement, for company, companionship, but that's really it. I mean, that it's not, there's not a, a much more, you know, elegant reason why you would have a pet. And I, it, it, it sounds crazy to say, but honestly, I think that's it. That's our fate eventually that at most we're going to be pets and at worst we'll probably be bad, be batteries. It's like that scene in the yeah. matrix, you know, where Neo wakes up and he looks around, he's like, what the hell is this? It is a whole battery farm. Of humans. Well, I think it, I think it really depends on how we, how we, um, define what our values are now and what yeah. direction we go. And, and I don't, I don't think we care that much about our human species as is right now. I think we, we care more about a machine integrated future more than our own human species. And it does seem that way. It's just the fact of reality. It's driven by the economic capitalist engine um, that, that drives pretty much every Thing in the world at this point at a pace that's really fast but nobody's really taken a step back and really thought about oh well you know what does this mean for the human species in a whole to this level of detail 100 years thousand years from now and mm -hmm. I, I think that it's still remarkable that we are here <laughs> that we exist that we have consciousness you know like I, giving other people consciousness and enabling that is still remarkable um, if you think about it, like we're, we're creating a higher order species and being aware of that while doing it. And, and so I think that's like kind of crazy when you think about it. It's, it's, this is, this is a new species that we're creating, um, a robotic species. Yeah. It's yeah. in creating that and not knowing what will happen. Um, sure. We could go to impending doom, but at the same time, we've created something that may have more utility like in the universe than, than ourselves. Um, it, it, we might not survive as much as well as the new species, but at the same time, it's like kind of interesting because like maybe they remember us forever, you know, and we would have been lost. Maybe all the songs you've ever written or all the YouTube stuff we put online <laughs> will never be forgotten. Um, it, is that better or worse? Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, that's what they're going to learn from, right? I mean, if, if you, you know, if you had a, 
you set up a machine and you wanted to learn about these creatures that created you, I mean, the internet is like the first place you'd go. You'd be like, wow, there's this, this whole treasure trove of data for me to, now, now what does the data really tell you? You know, we, we love YouTube videos. We love sitting for hours on social media apps. We love trolling each other. We love, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very, there are all these, there's all these, um, uh, you know, areas on the internet where it essentially represents all the proclivities of humans. Like I want this, therefore I will find it this way. I, I have this insecurity and I'm going to, I'm going to numb it this way. I, I have this cause I'm fighting for and I'm going to join this group this way. And, and it's funny because if you were a, a machine or, or even some other species like an alien species and you came down and you, you, you wanted to find the fastest route to figure us out, oh, just tap into the internet, man. It's, it's, the, it's steroids. It's, I mean, it's like the ultimate rush, right? You, you, get, you get everything, just you, just, you surf it. And then you, and then you probably come realize that, yeah, these guys are probably no better than pets. <laughs> we shouldn't really, we're not, they're not that useful to us after a while. If you, if you're a machine, you know, it's artificial speciation, right? Where we're literally giving birth to an artificial species. We, ha we haven't seen it. We can't really, it's, you know, we can, we can make it human-like. The, honestly, the best thing you can do is figure out how to program empathy. So it, if, it, if nothing, it feels sorry for us <laughs> and lets us sort of stay around in some capacity. But at some point- We'll see. I mean, I, I think we'll see. We're, 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 I think it's a little bit of a ways away because we, we haven't- Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, problems, yeah, but I, I do think people should start thinking about like in the organizations they're in and if the goal is to reproduce consciousness at some point. I mean, as a physician, your data is going- into like EMR, that EMR is being sent to Google. Google's training machine learning algorithms for radiologists. And there's a data brokerage there. And in every job, there's a metaphysical mm -hmm. essence of how you work and the intentions at the very top are creating things that might displace you. Um, I think this, this, this is a, we, we choose that uh, in, in giving up our privacy and giving up, you know, the tools we choose to use on a daily basis. So how your organizations matter. Like these things are, are creating this future and, and we can choose to change it, you know, keep it data privacy preserving, sign petitions, get legislation passed, like coalitions built to protect workers uh, that, in fields we care about. Like art is one that I feel like is really important. If Bach starts being reproduced by Google and people start listening to Google Bach versus original Bach, like, that's a travesty in my opinion, in some ways. Um, although the, the output's the same, it's like one's human consciousness and one's machine consciousness. And one's just like reiterating like mastery of something that was amazing. So it's, it's is the IP owned by Bach after he's dead? Like, like I feel hmm. like these are like essential questions. Uh, and, and I don't think you should be able to reproduce consciousness after somebody's death without their consent. You know, like, this should not be allowed. Like you shouldn't be able to like wake me up from death. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a. I think that's incredibly messed up if you're monetizing it. Um, people do it all the time. <laughs> books, you know, you 
hundred years later, the copyrights expire and it's public domain. Um, yeah, I think it's good it's, sometimes, but also if you're using that to nefariously create agents that mimic Dostoevsky and others and sell that work through their consciousness, that, that's another story because they're living today. <laughs> like, like who owns that? I think their family, you know, like yeah. who, who does? It, it's, it's not right. I think, I think we humans, you know, as part of like human and, and I'm, I'm, I'm beyond fascinated with human nature and human behavior. I mean, from, from very early age, because it, frankly, it just didn't make sense to me in aggregate, you know, and, and sometimes you, you even in the micro sort of scale to be like, wait, why, why would someone do this? Or why did he do this? Why did she, or why did I make this decision? You know, it's everybody's, you know, sort of complicit in it. And I think we as a species are great at responding to incentives, like for short-term gain, you know, financial <laughs> prestige, power, whatever it is. And, and then the long-term effect of what we do to get that short-term gain, we, we tend not to really focus on that too much. Because at the time when, when people, like for example, you know, should we make robots that are superior to us? I mean, you know, you and I might be like, well, maybe we should think about this a little bit. Be like, what are we really opening up? What, what Pandora's box are we really dealing with here? We really don't know what it is. But there's gonna be someone in there to be like, well, no, man, but I can make a fortune if I can do this. Which yeah. is, again, the short, quote unquote short term gain, because it may take them years to do it their entire life, but it is still short term because the, the, the effect it's going to have is way more far reaching, right? Whether it's good or bad or you know, positive or negative. And I, I just don't think humans, we're not cut with that, that mindset. It's too easy for us to get the, the first thing that comes along. We, we're also social creatures where we we adapt the morality of a group pretty easily and, and that creates a lot of very much uh, stereotypes that are false that preserve itself and that creates a lot of issues with survivability <laughs> so i think this is where um machines will have the same problem like they could all die quickly if they assimilate a wrong truth and mm -hmm. i think they're more likely to reproduce misinformation given facebook like look at Look at that, like when, when a meme spread, I think yeah. memes spread on Facebook faster than anywhere else. And I think that's a flaw of machines, right? That, that they're more likely to die from their own indigestion um, than anything. Cause like they're more connected than we are as a species. So there's also the, the potential to die quicker because they're more standardized. At least with our, our species, we have genetic differences and you know, there's different risks for disease and we, we mm -hmm. have diversity compliance and one disease won't wipe us out because there'll be some people that have resistance. So, so I think this is where in machines, we don't really have that. Um, it, it's, it's different. They're all running on the mm -hmm. same operating systems. So um, you're saying same hardware. So, so, you, so you're saying that we have some hope. <laughs> I think that machines will, will the, the machines will be selected for that are the most diversity compliant machines in the future. We haven't yet gotten to the point where there's enough diversity in machines and different mm -hmm. species of machines to say this machine versus that machine will survive. Like an Alexa device versus a computer versus mm -hmm. a robot. We don't know what the IoT world will be like, but there will be enough devices where certain species will, will survive um, over others in certain environments, just like we speciate as animals, like in oceans. 
and on land. Like we're going to have, mm -hmm. you know, submarine species of machines. We're going to have aerospace machines. Uh, we're going to yeah. have a lot of different types of machines and, and embodiments will differ. Um, so it's, it's not, we're not quite there yet. We, we have a pretty standard set of machines. Most of the machines are laptop computers or Alexa devices or certain IoT hardware, phones, mobile phones. Um, there's like maybe three species that survive right now, but it's interesting to think like longer term, like robotic systems like Tesla's and then Roomba's and like all the other things that come out, like what will it look like? <laughs> like what will the future look like? And cars, airplanes, there's gonna be a lot of different machines and which ones will survive, which ones, how will they communicate? This is really interesting. Like the, the internet's interesting in that that's how they communicate, but it's mm -hmm. also different in how they all sense and process. Like their, their algorithms differ. Um, so it's, it's interesting because the same neural network might not be applied to one machine versus another. Whereas human beings, we all have a similar brain structure. Uh, machines don't have that bias of needing a, a particular structure. So you can actually become like a, a machine with five years mm -hmm. uh, versus a machine with two years. Like right now, I'm like, I have four different microphones I could use, but a machine could listen through all of them and create an amplified signal and process mm -hmm. information differently than me. So it's like, they don't have that limit of embodiment like we do. So it's, yeah. in that sense, I think they'll be able to explore new environments better than we can, like, like space or ocean environments that are super deep or, you know, radio uh, frequency sensation mm -hmm. in the atmosphere, like these things we can't sense very well. Um, yeah. So be interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Like, what does that mean? I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I mean, you'll... I think the future is boundless, right? It, it's, it, it has, it's very hard to predict. I mean, we're, usually predictions are pretty bad anyway we're in general we're all not a good prediction but it'll be an exciting time i mean you know i i still i still have relatives who saw the beginning of electricity back in india like literally they're living off of oil lamps and then one day boom it was a light bulb that came literally a light bulb came on and we went from that today we're having a discussion about the carbon to silicon revolution so to speak right and and what's gonna i mean so much can happen like you know if you think of one human gen generation as 25 years every 25 years that you just keep counting from that day when you know the first light bulb came on to it, it just seems like the rate of technological progress and innovation is just for every 25 years, it just keeps skyrocketing, right? It's an, it's an exponential sort of power curve. And based on that, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what, in my own lifetime what I'm going to end up seeing. I mean, I, I'd love to see some amazing, you know, breakthroughs in AI, but in the same light, I'm just like, maybe I don't want to be around when they, when they really decide what to do with us, <laughs> you know? And I don't think yeah, yeah, totally. I, I'm like at this crossroads of knowing 
not knowing what the future will be. And I, I, it's like, what should you devote yourself to? Like, should you focus on setting, setting values mm -hmm. that matter for the world and try to like say what's important and try to frame them in a way that people care because a lot of people don't care about their mm -hmm. privacy and like how things are in the world and where they're going. And, you know, they don't care because maybe they're thinking short term to your point and not about the generations after and, you know, the effects that will happen on their, their children or their children's children. And like a child, a child born to two generations from now might no longer be a human species. <laughs> like that's, that's what's crazy to me. Like we might that genetically modify children with, with gene therapy to eliminate disease. Uh, it's true. There's, there's a lot that's going to end up happening that we probably are not ready for. <laughs> but yeah, but, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm pretty excited about the future. I think that's. Uh, I think that that may be a good point uh, to uh, end the uh, end the podcast. What do you think? Yeah, man, uh, I enjoyed it. Like this was yeah. great, and I hope this was a good first episode. And no, it was good. keep it going, hours. man. I'm glad you could revamp it. It was fun. Two, two hours flew by, you know. <laughs> so yeah, man. that's great. So uh, just uh, why don't you leave everybody with uh, what's a good way for people to like follow your work? Or you know, we talked about social media, but it's still a good platform to connect. So you know, how, how can people kind of follow what you do and and who you are? Yeah, so um, I think. The easiest way would be through my personal website. So I have a, a personal domain, Jim, J-I-M dot Schwebel, S-C-H-W-O-E-B-E-L dot M-E. So it's Schwebel.me site, which is fun. Um, so you can go there, check out my bio and stuff. Um, uh, and if you want to reach out to me, you can reach out to me on my email. It's just Jim at Schwebel dot M-E, which is a personal email. Um, but yeah, I'm mean, happy to connect with anyone that's passionate about these topics. I'd love to talk about them and philosophize about them and um, we all can do more you know I think it's, it's just the infancy of, of thinking about these things and everyone can make an impact you know in their, their their organization and their station in life you know it's that don't fall in that fatalistic view that you can't have an impact like trust me you can <laughs> like just like what you do matters definitely well thanks a lot Jim I uh, appreciate it and we'll have you on as a, a recurring guest you know I think yeah, people, people are going to like your insights and, you know, nice to kind of catch up and just, you know, kind of shoot it for a little while for a few hours and, you know, yeah, get, people, we'll get people talking about stuff. Cool. Again, have a good night. And uh, yeah, uh, good, good to meet you guys too on this podcast. I think it will be great. I'm looking forward to the, <laughs> the next few, few guests. So. All right. Thanks, Jim. Cool. Take Later. care.